0: Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Galatians chapter 4, and we do want to be careful, especially this morning, to uh, say uh, good morning to those that are listening or will be listening on the Facebook posts. Uh, We know a lot of folks can't make it in, so we're assuming, hoping that they're taking advantage of that. We want you to know that you're in our thoughts. Uh, This message was originally um, put together, I guess that's as good a word as any, uh, for last Sunday which was of course the last Sunday of the Christmas season. You may not have been aware of that. Christmas season lasts until January 5th. Um, It's been updated already Um, but if it seems a little bit out of sync you you know you you know why. It's still I believe uh, relevant. Uh, Today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. And if if you're not from a liturgical church background, that might not mean a lot to you. I am from a liturgical church background. I can remember Epiphany. The word just means appearance. It's one of those words that comes right from Greek into English. Um, And it is kind of a a strange time of year, this time of year. I mean, we've all been talking about what the last week, the weather, right? But if we didn't have that, what would we be talking about? No, it's just like a lull. In fact, I heard somebody say, just before the wind started, I'm so glad for this lull, right? didn't last long. But because we've had, you know, all the stuff starting with Thanksgiving and all the activities of the holidays, and then you've got Christmas, and then you've got the craziness of New Year's, and then we turn the corner, and it's like, now what, right? Because if you look at your, at your calendar, not a church calendar, but the kind of calendar you get at the store, um, nothing happens until like Valentine's Day, right? It's just, it's open, the calendar's blank, and for like almost six weeks until Valentine's Day. Um, tax day is like still three months off, right? If you're the kind that files early, I don't want to talk to you. Um, PFDs can be filled out now, but we have another like three months for the app. So there's not a whole lot like right in our face right now, and it is, it's kind of a lull, right? That's not the case, though, if you're looking at a church calendar. Again, if you're from a liturgical background, you kind of know what, what this is all about. We have this season of epiphany. Started this last week. Um, the word means to appear. In the Western church, uh, that's a focus on the wise men appearing at you know, the home, or however you want to read the account, put that together, where Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus were at, the wise men appearing. Uh, in the Eastern church, the focus is on his baptism, They have their own, you know, traditions. So there's a lot going on if you're looking at a church calendar and the church schedule for the year. And it all kind of revolves around one thing, and that's the one thing I'd like to talk about this morning. It's a big thing. I want to talk about time, just the whole idea of time, right? And the reason I want to do that is because the way we understand time has an incredible influence on how we act. Our perception of time really affects how we act. And that's not just a theological or biblical consideration. Um, It's very much in secular writing as well. In fact, some of the terms I'll be using this morning, um, biblical terms, um, come right out of secular literature as well. A uh, lot's being written about the way we use time and how we relate to time. So without going any farther, let's, let's get to the biblical text, and that'll give us a start. So Galatians chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, Paul writes, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage to, under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the protection that we have all enjoyed, even with the challenge of these last many days, Father, with the wind and all that, Lord. You are so good to us, and we do need to constantly, Lord be in a place of thankfulness to you, and trust, Lord, and looking to you now in your word, thankful for it, and trusting that you will instruct us, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So when we speak of time, from a biblical perspective, there's a lot of words we could talk about, but there's two words that really stand out, some of you may be familiar with these, and they are the word Chronos and keros. So we're going to talk about kronos and keros this morning, right? Um, And before we go, um, and again, these are words that are making their way into secular vocabulary as well. Uh, I read an article just this week, a wholly secular article, about these two words. So it's out there, right? Um, But before we go any farther, one one disclaimer. I'm not going to get into any of the physics side of time. Not that that's not important. I'm just not the person to go into that. That's not... What I do now, hopefully, what I say will be in agreement with what someone that understood the physics element would say, or at least not be too far afield, right? But that's not where we're going this morning, right? Um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say on that, right? Um, but what I want to speak about is the biblical perspective, how that influences us, and how our perception or our understanding of that uh, influences us. So what we're going to do is talk about these two words, get some kind of a definition for them kronos and keros, define them, see how they're used in Scripture, and then see how they come together in the Incarnation, the Christmas story and an Epiphany, this whole season that we celebrate, how these two words come together, and what happens when they come together, and then lastly, consider their significance to our lives. And again, that may sound a little theoretical, I can assure you it's not. It has tremendous relevance to our lives. So first of all, uh, the two words, Chronos and keros, first kronos. It, it's a big word, and it's an old word. Now the reason I talk about the age of the word, you may say, who cares, right? Uh, words are tools, if you think about it. They're tools that were created to convey an idea. And if you're trying to do something, or you're going into a profession, which are the tools you acquire first? The most important ones, right? If you're gonna be a carpenter, hammer, saw, tape measure, right? Everything else after that, Secondary, right? So cultures and societies acquire their most important words first. So when we say that word like chronos is so old, that means that it was understood way back at the beginning, as far back as you can go in Greek literature. They understood. They had to be able to talk about this idea of time. And that is in no way unique to Greek. That's kind of a universal among languages. Time, the words for that are very old. Um, the way chronos is used... Um, it speaks of time as that lineal, relentless, unchanging, irresistible, just keeps going on. If you want a visual and you have an analog watch, just look at the hand go tick, tick, tick. Now, admittedly, you could pull the stem out and stop that, but that wouldn't mean that time had stopped, that would just mean your watch had stopped, right? It's that relentless, really can't do anything about it. It just keeps on going, right? Uh, It's a word you'll probably recognize, chronos, from chronometer. If you spend more money on your watch than I do, your watch is called a chronometer, right? Same thing, really. It's just something that measures time. And if you think about it, the very fact that we speak of time as measurable says some things about it, like it's consistent. If time changed, Einstein aside, if time, That's as far as the physics as I'm going to go. If time wasn't consistent, what good would your watch be? Unless you had a really good watch. I mean, I don't know how that would work, right? It's consistent, right? It's, you can't do anything about it. Again, we talk about time being measurable. It says something. It's our, really our whole basis for how we understand time, what we think about it. And we, and we reveal that in the expressions we use. Probably the best one is, time waits for no one, right? What are we saying? that time just goes on. It doesn't matter what you think, what you want, time just... and it's impersonal, doesn't know your name, doesn't care. Uh, It's unaffected by man. Or, or, Or saying like this, this watch really keeps good time. What does that mean? We mean the watch accurately measures this continuing sense of time. How about a waste of time? What does that suggest? That suggests that time is valuable. The value is created by the fact that we only have so much of it. Okay? So, valuable. Or how about this one? This may be kind of the most revelatory. Uh, we'll refer to something that made time fly. Now, actually, that didn't happen. Time didn't speed up. But whatever we were doing or would do when we use that expression meant that our perception of time was affected, right? Or time is going to drag, right? Sitting in class, there's only 10 minutes left, and you look at the clock. It just seems to slow down. Time hasn't slowed down, it's just you're sitting in a class you don't want to sit in. So our, ex- our expressions generate this sense of time, right? The bigger question is where does time come from? And the theologians love to, develop, to debate this one. Um, was time created or not? Well, if time wasn't created, that means God exists in time, and God is defined by time. I would argue very strongly that time itself is created and I think scripture makes that point Uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth right the earth was formless and void darkness was over the surface of the deep the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters then God said let there be light there was light God saw light was good dark and God separated the light from the darkness he called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day." Now one could argue that that's not demonstrating that time itself is created merely the sun and the moon and light and darkness as ways of measuring time, but that isn't the only verse on the subject. In fact, that isn't even the key part of that verse. The key part of that verse is at the point of beginning, at whatever point you want to start, God is clearly described as being already there in a state of continual existence. God's existence always demonstrated in Scripture to be continuous, therefore not measurable by time. Good example of that in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, that is Jesus, was already in a state of existence. He already was being when the beginning started. He was with God and the Word was God. All things came into creation through Him, right? At the very beginning, He was already there. Right? So scripture always, describes, scripture always describes God as existing, never is starting. Right, uh, That's one way to demonstrate that God created time, that he exists outside of time. There's another way from scripture that you might not have thought about. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, I the Lord do not change. Think about that. Is there anything that doesn't change with time? In fact, in most cultures, in one way or another, time and change are equated. With time, change is inevitable. For God to be able to say, I do not change, is a demonstration that he exists outside of time. So altogether, it's reasonable to say that God created time. Time is part of the created order. And that's that chronos time that we're talking about. When we talk about past, present, and future, for those of us, those are distinct thoughts. For God, on the other hand, past, present, and future are all perspectives for him. He can exist in all three simultaneously if he chooses, whatever suits his purposes, right? So Kronos created time, uh, and it has an effect. Kronos time, this relentless sense of time, this measurable, regular progression of time, it has an effect. Matthew 2.7 Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Right? Another use of the word chronos is chronological. Meaning ordered according to time. And the description of the events surrounding Jesus' birth are listed chronologically. That's how we tend to think. Right? If you're like me, if you, you, know, if you read a book or you watch a movie that's not chronological, it kind of makes you really uncomfortable. Right? I still have not recovered from watching Interstellar. I've not been the same person. Because it's like time. Is just, uh, that's the whole part of time that I don't function with, right? Um, Matthew 2.16. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the magi, he became very enraged and went and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined From the Magi. So time has tremendous influence, cost people their lives in this case. This progression of time, lineal, progressive, irresistible, impersonable. Um, That's chronos, pretty much how we think about time. Again, look at your watch, watch it tick away. That's time. How about keros? Keros is also an extremely old word, Um, goes back to the very beginning of of the Greek language. Um, It's usually translated as season. But a better, uh, a closer translation to the actual, you know, root of the word is the idea of that which is appropriate. And the best example of that, I think we probably all would recognize when Jesus went to the fig tree and didn't see any figs on it, you know, chapter 11, because it, it wasn't the season for figs. That doesn't actually mean it wasn't the right time on the calendar for figs. It meant it wouldn't have been appropriate for a fig to be. And the whole purpose, the whole whole purpose, excuse me, of that text is to show where Jesus is at emotionally. The cross is right in his face, and he's looking for stuff that's not going to be there. It just shows the incredible impact of the pending crucifixion on his mindset, where he was at personally. So it wasn't appropriate for figs to be there, therefore it is. Keros. There's a passage of scripture where these two words come together and it helps us understand them really well. Uh, a passage we all, I think, pretty well know thanks to a British rock group. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know, there's an appointed th- season or appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, and the song goes on, right? Well, in that first verse, that first verse, there's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. Both kronos and keros are used. But as that passage goes on, and I think most of us know it, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what's planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, and it goes on from there. Those are all keros. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek in the Septuagint, and they translated that section, they used keros for all those other seasons, all those other appropriate times, right? Another way to look at it is to say Chronos is time, and keros is timing. And if you think about it, where do we live? Where do we actually live? Where do we make our decisions day by day? It's pretty much usually based on a timing. Is it the right time to start this project? Do I have enough time to complete this project? Is it the right time? Is it the wrong time? Is it the right time to get married? Do we wait? Timing questions, right? Um, another way to think about it is that Chronos is God's side of the equation, right? Because you and I can't do a thing about Chronos, right? It just rolls on, right? Can God? We actually have two very strong biblical examples, right? The first from the book of Joshua, and Joshua was in battle, and he ran out of time, so he prayed, and what happened? God made the sun stand still for a span of three hours. Now we know from the physical side, he didn't Affect the sun, it was the rotation of the earth. That's a cosmic miracle, right? And then over in Second Kings, he made the shadow move back on a set of steps in the side of Hezekiah. The shadow went backwards three steps. That means God had to actually, or however he did it, but like stop the rotation of the earth and turn it back, like reset, you know, like daylight savings times on a cosmic scale, right? See, God can influence, can control even Kronos. So I would suggest Kronos is kind of God's side of the equation where we live with Keros, because where we live, timing is everything, and that's an oversimplification, but it expresses the idea. Now let's take just a quick moment and talk about the secular view of these two things, because like I said, and I was really surprised to find this, it's really come into the secular vocabulary. A writer by the name of McKinley Valentine, never heard of her before, but she wrote, writes really well, talks about Kronos and Keros, um, and she really represents, I think, kind of a universal non-Christian view, non-biblical view, um, because she goes into ancient Greek and Roman culture, she goes into Hindu culture, pretty good, pretty good cross-section, and in her writing, she represents Kronos' is like, bad. Now, it's not her idea. It's what she's describing she has found. For example, uh, in, in Roman culture, uh, Cronos, by the way, was a deity. He, he was an ancient Greek deity. right? He was the father of Zeus and the king of the Titans. And uh, he's always portrayed as being really old. right? Always really old. right? We'll talk a little more about that. But in, in Roman mythology, Cronus is Saturn. Do you know anything about, about Saturn, the deity? He had a habit of, of eating his children, he always ate his kids. So you can understand why he's not exactly nice, okay? So Kronos is described as bad because it's relentless, it's impersonal, you can't reason with it. Most of all, it always wins, we die. Period. Not a nice guy, right? And in, in her work, uh, Miss Valentine points out the linguistic and historical connection, the progression from our idea of Kronos as time to father time, and then the next step is the Grim Reaper. And most of our visuals of the Grim Reaper can be traced back to Roman thought about Saturn. The whole thing, you know, right? right, Okay. So Kronos is really bad. In her writing, Keros is really good, because that's that moment that we live in. And what she what she's trying to persuade her readers to do is to live in the moment because, frankly, that's all you got. If it's a beautiful sunset, you better go look at it because you don't get, necessarily get another one, right? If something wonderful is happening, go enjoy it. In other words, live in the moment, that whole seize the moment mentality because that's all you get. All we can really function in, enjoy, all that we can in any way interact with is Kairos, this moment, the appropriate moment, right? Pursue the keros moment. That's what she's all about. The only problem with that, and she doesn't go into it, but the biblical perspective mandates it, is ultimately those moments end. And we're back to Kronos, the guy with the sickle, or the scythe, right? So there's a secular view, and it sounds good, but it loses to the biblical view, which in fact is a whole lot better. The biblical view is better and not just because it sounds better but because it's more consistent with our understanding of God. God's character, loving, giving, relational and God who works in both chronos and keros. Uh, In Daniel chapter 21 Daniel said it is he, God who changes times and epics. When when that came into Greek from the Hebrew they used chronos and keros, right? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, that one that started out with the appropriate time, it tells us a whole lot. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this, He has made everything appropriate in its time. So God has made keros for our benefit to recognize these appropriate moments. But then he adds this, He's also said eternity in our heart. So even though we function in this keros sense, when's the right time to act? What do I do in this moment? What's the appropriate thing? in our hearts, we're constantly inclined toward the other one. That's where God is. And we're inclined toward Him. Functioning in keros, conscious of Chronos. Now let's see how these words come together in the Incarnation, and this is extraordinary. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, again, verse 1. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And then he goes on to say, we also, uh, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. That's all talking about keros. And that concept of the elemental things of the world, that's not just the physical elements of the world, that's the system or the order by which the economy, if you will, the world functions. So all of that, just like a child who is the heir to everything, he owns the whole estate, but he has no control over in, or influence over any of it because the father hasn't set the time for that change to take place. So he's under the rule of autocratic slaves, essentially, because that's what the tutor was, what the manager was, right? But then he goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time came, that's chronos. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay when the fullness of time came, in Kronos, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. At the moment, this is the whole package here, guys, at the moment of the incarnation, and when did the incarnation occur? At Christmas? No. Nine months before that. The incarnation occurs nine months before whatever date you want to put Jesus' birth at, right? You may be the December 25th crowd, you may be there sometime in the spring crowd, doesn't matter. Whatever date you want to choose, the incarnation is nine months before that. And that is absolutely critical, and here's why. At the moment of the incarnation, Jesus stepped from Kronos to Keros. After Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, what did he do next? He waited. Let that sink in for just a second. The word of God, wait. Is that a God word to wait? Consider consider this from the Gospel of Luke. If you just think about for this for a second, it's like if it wasn't for the fact that it was biblical, we'd have to call it heretical. Luke chapter two, verse forty. The Bible says of Jesus, the child continued to grow. And become strong, increasing in wisdom. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking about God in human flesh. He continued to grow. How does God do that? How does God, an infinite being, grow? And become strong. What does that suggest? There was a moment where he was not strong. How does an omnipotent God become not strong, and then become strong, right? Or better yet, increasing in wisdom. How does the word of God increase? None of that works unless something drastic has happened relative to the environment in which God has placed himself. If you don't recognize that the incarnation is God entering into our time These statements basically are in disagreement with all of our theology about God because they all define God as finite. But if we accept that God incarnate in human form enters into our economy and accepts with that all that goes along with it, Jesus didn't just find a body and move in. No, incarnate in human flesh, and with that all the limitations of human flesh, all the weakness of human flesh, such that he had to wait nine months to be born. After he was born, grow in strength, grow in wisdom, just like we do. Wrap your brain around that. I'm still working on that, right? He entered our economy. He experienced change. Prior to the incarnation, had God ever, in an interpersonal way, experienced change? No. He's unchanging. He just got done saying, I don't change. But in the incarnation, he has to experience change because that's how incarnation works, right? That's a huge part of the Christmas message. That's a huge part of the epiphany marriage. His appearing to us, man, he did it on our troops. He entered a carous economy. He had to wait for the appropriate time to be born. He had to wait for the appropriate time to reveal himself to man. He had to wait for the appropriate time to die. And he had to wait for the appropriate time to be resurrected, operating on our economy, right? So what's the message to us, right? And this is where it gets really amazing, right? When Jesus stepped... I'm going to need to figure of speech here. When Jesus stepped from eternity... Kronos experience, into our world, Kairos experience, from glory to humanity, he opened a door to step from one to there's not a physical door, there's a figure of speech. He opened a door. Here's the key thing: He left it open. He left it open. And because that door is open, we have an opportunity. We can touch Kronos. That's what Jesus is talking about, like in John 3.15, where he says, whoever believes in him, that is the Son of God, will have eternal life. Having eternal life means living an eternal experience, which only happens in Kronos. In Christ, we begin, just as the child, the heir, doesn't have all the benefits of being an heir, but yet is the heir, right? You know, being an heir, having an inheritance, the stuff you inherit, is not what's important. It's the fact that you're an heir that's important. Because it shows who you're related to. It's all based in relationship. It's all based in relationship. You know, because of my, my parents did pretty well. They did pretty well. But because of my mom needed you know extra care for a long period of time, most of the tangible part of the estate was gone. There wasn't a big inheritance, right? I couldn't care less. I am still the heir of Pat and Nick Moropoulos. I am still the grandson of Demetrius and Josefina Moropoulos. I am still the grandson of Richard and Lillian Malloy. That is so much more valuable. to me. The fact that I am their heir is of infinite more value to me than what what the inheritance might have amounted to. And I rejoice in that. I rejoice in, in who I am that's defined by them, right? Jesus opened a door that we could touch eternity. Another way of looking at this, another way of looking at this, um, have you ever noticed in the Old Testament the whole issue of eternity is kind of vague, right? What's the expression they use in the Old Testament when the saints died? They were gathered to their people. What in the world does that mean? They got gathered their bones and had a party? It, it, it doesn't really tell you much of anything, does it? When you dealt with the death of someone in the Old Testament, it really, I mean, it's there if you know how to look for it. But it's not like right in your face, right? The Old Testament's a little bit vague on that question. The New Testament, no vagueness at all. 2 Corinthians 5.8, in fact, Paul says, we are confident and we would in fact prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Crystal clear understanding of what happens after we die. Yeah, there's questions, but they're details. We know where we go after we die. We're with the Lord. We have Chronos, not, the, not the, the intolerable sense of Chronos that the secular view implies, but the beautiful sense of Chronos because we know who we have believed and who we have trusted in and we will be with him. When the saints of the old, when they labored and they worked and they built things, who were they leaving them for? Well, somebody else, hopefully their kids, and hopefully their kids don't you know, mess it up, right? But they had no control over it. They just left it. We can, we have the opportunity, because Jesus has opened that door, we can labor in a way that impacts eternity. The very fact that Jesus would say something, look in Mark 5, 12, great is your reward in heaven. We, he doesn't just mean we get the reward in heaven. Like that's our Amazon address, you know. The things you do that are building his kingdom, those things end up shipped there. No, it's not just in heaven. It's of an eternal nature. We can do things now. Anytime we do Anything that builds his kingdom now, we are impacting not just then, but there, eternity. That's that open door that Jesus left open for us, right? Not just in heaven, but for heaven. When the New Testament saint, when a New Testament saint, not just the ones in the book, but us, when we invest in the kingdom of God, There is a Kronos award, eternal reward. You know, if we only work for this world, if we only work for this world, um, you know the old saying, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? If we only work for this world, Keros, if we only impact people for this world, that is the ultimate waste of time. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. And Lord, there's just way so much more we could talk about on this subject, Lord. But Father, we know this. We know this. That You have created us to live and function in this environment. And like that child that Paul talks about in Galatians 4, that heir who's not come of age, we still, Father, in so many ways function under the elementary principles of this world. Yet, Father, we're conscious as well that because Jesus left heaven, entered into our economy, our time, and dealt with all the limitations and the weaknesses that that brought about, Lord, that he has made possible for us to reach out and touch, Father, eternity in a way that would have been possible no other way. And that gives us a hope, and that gives us an expectation, that gives us a confidence, what Paul talked about, we have this confidence. Father, it gives us, it gives us guidelines and, and hopefully wisdom in how we invest our time today, Lord. I pray as we go through this week, our minds would would digest these things, Father, that we might live lives of infinitely greater profit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.